vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching, proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for, for music, music teachers. This is the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and today we're talking about different ways we can introduce new pieces to our students. Welcome back, beautiful teachers. Today's lovely article comes from our guest, Ben, and Ben runs the podcast All Keyed Up. This podcast is kind of a little bit meta in a weird way, which is Ben has gained a lot of these lessons through his conversations on his own podcast, and he suggested writing this article for us, summarizing some of the things he's learned, and now I'm redigesting that onto this podcast. But I think it's going to be an interesting journey. So the first thing Ben goes through are two mistakes that he used to make with introducing new pieces that I share with him. I also used to do both these things and I no longer do. So mistake number one is going through the piece one bar at a time in chronological order. So you say, okay, let's try bar one or maybe it's line one if we're talking about something less complex. And then we try the next bar and then we try the next bar. Or as I would have done it before, it would be right hand and then left hand for one bar at a time or one line at a time. And then hands together, same thing. You can hear it in my voice, right? (laughs) Not only is this inefficient, it's also boring. It's boring for you. It's boring for your students. It's not necessary. We don't have to do things this way every time. And if it is your default at the moment, trust me, I understand how you get into into that mode because... It just seems like the obvious thing to do. But there are so many better ways to go through something. Ben gives this example. Imagine sitting in a, through an English lesson with a teacher who teaches a short story one paragraph at a time. And I would take that further. It's like one sentence at a time. It's like one word at a time. And they just go through that until you got that sentence. And then they do the next sentence. I mean, I don't think it would be a great way to learn to read, do you? That's a big mistake that many of us make. And if you're making it right now, I hope we'll give you some alternatives of ways to get started with pieces. But mistake number two is about introducing the piece exactly the way the book introduces it. I would say introducing the concepts in the piece as they come up is really what I understand Ben to be talking about here. I call this preemptive theory, the alternative approach, which means that my students meet most theory concepts before they meet a piece that uses that concept. I don't turn the page and say, okay, there's a little box here that explains what a rest is. So here's what a rest is, read through the box, and then we learn the piece. They have already met the rest through a game, through an improv together, through an activity we did, through movement, through something. They already have some concept of what a rest is and now they're going to meet it within a piece. The reason this is so important to me is because when we introduce things for the first time in a piece and then reinforce it later, the student has the hardest form of it first, which is within a piece, okay? That is the hardest because you've got all these new notes to read, you don't know what it sounds like yet, your hands are expected to find the right notes while you read it and you're expected to incorporate the new concept. 
If you made it instead during a game or during a movement activity, you have fewer expectations on yourself about getting it right. You just sort of participate and have fun with it and you aren't bothered by the mistakes you made. And you're not worried about your finger coordination and reading the music and the previous concepts you've learned. You're just thinking about that one thing or a couple of things. So with those two mistakes out of the way, let's go through the nine different creative ways that Ben suggests in introducing a piece. And I would add to this that we also have some great resources that I've written previously about different approaches to starting a new piece, which are more about like literally the first step you take in terms of playing. But what Ben's talking about here are different ways to literally introduce it, meaning like how does your student meet this piece for the first time? So I think those these two things go great together. So idea number one is to use the title to boost creativity. So you can take a title of a piece and use that as a jumping off point to talk about what this piece might be about, the story behind it. You can also use boring titles by changing them. We've had um, a student a while back, is a great example of this, who just hated coffee and therefore would not learn I love coffee in Piano Safari 1. She's a beginner student. It's a great piece, but she wouldn't even listen to it really. Not in a bold way, but just she said, no, I don't want to learn that because I hate coffee. And that was all it could mean to her. And I told this wasn't one of my students. This was another teacher here. And I told him, okay, just scribble out coffee and ask her what she does like and write that in. It has to be two syllables, but that's all, you know. And he thought it was magic. Because he, he did this with the student and she then loved the piece and it all went smoothly. So changing a title of a piece. Yeah, the composer gave it a, their original title with some thought and for some reason. But I've never met a composer who would be bothered by personalizing a piece, especially a pedagogical one, in this way. So whether you take the current title or make a new one, this can be a great opportunity to provide some creative exploration for your student and allow them to connect with the music. Idea number two is to talk about why the piece is musically noteworthy. And I love this. So Ben gives some great examples here. Learn the piece, um, the theme to the movie Up, which uses loads of seventh chords. He didn't just go through it with a student and circle all the seventh chords. He played it for his student without the seventh chords, with them modified back into just regular triads. And so she got to see or here, I should say, the difference that those seventh chords make, what they were doing. And another example he gives is learning the piece Sweet Molly Malone, we would just call it Molly Malone here, in the arrangement in Piano Pronto, and it introduces dotted quarter notes or dotted crotchets. And he played it with straight, just crotchets the whole way through, to show his student that it sounds completely different, that it sounds a lot more boring when it's without that dotted rhythm. And I think that's a really great opportunity. I also use that piece, actually, when I have taught it, to mess around with it a bit (laughs) and experiment where the dotted notes go because the way we sing it locally is not the way it's written by Jennifer there. And it's not to say she's wrong. I'm just saying there's different ways to sing every song, especially folk songs like that. So our dotted notes are not where she puts them. So we often modify those. And it gives students an opportunity to, you know, scribble out the current notation, write in the dots themselves, add the tails to the new quavers and scribble out the ones that shouldn't be quavers anymore. And 
yeah, experimenting with a piece in that way can help a student see the effect those dots are having and can help them therefore value them, I think. Like those seventh chords might have been hard or the dotted notes might be new and therefore difficult for a student. But if they understand what it is that it's doing to the music, they're much more likely to be enthusiastic about that challenge. Idea number three is about the history behind the piece. So this isn't just, you know, what were these composers' dates, but what else was going on at the same time? I love history when it's approached like this. It's one of the reasons why I actually, I didn't enjoy history in school. When I had the option, I chose not to do it. And um, we get to choose when we're around 16, whether we do history or not as part of a choice of four subjects. And I did not choose history because I never enjoyed it in school. But then I had history of art and history of costume and fashion when I was in college. And I loved those classes. And the reason is not because it was art and fashion. It's because my teacher put everything in a context. So I tried to do the same thing with music in small ways. Now, we don't have a huge chunk of time to teach history to our students, but we can bring up, you know, what were the people wearing at the time or what was going on politically at the time in a simple way that's age appropriate, of course. You can show artwork that was being made at the same time as the Impressionist pieces by Debussy. You can show all sorts of things. Just one little taste can be enough to hook your student in and help them understand the music in a completely different way. Idea number four from Ben is guided listening, and I love this one. By guided, he means that the student is not just going to listen to the piece without anything to do. They need to be told what to listen for or what question they're going to be asked when the piece is finished. I think this is really important for all listening you do with your students. Always give them something to focus on because otherwise they will just drift. They don't have the ears that we have. They don't have the same development. They're not going to listen in the same way we do. We need to give them one aspect to listen to. The dynamics, a particular motif that's coming up. What instruments are involved if they're going to be playing an arrangement of an orchestral work or something like that. Idea number five is to get your student moving. Movement activities allow students to experience music throughout their whole bodies. You can do this with listening as well. You can get your students up and moving freely to the music or marching to the beat or following the melodic line with a scarf. There's so much you can do in terms of movement and you don't need to overthink it. I think sometimes teachers are nervous of this. They feel like they need Dalcro's training or Kadai training or, or for something specialist to know how to make the most of this. There's nothing wrong with just moving about a bit. You will find ways to move to the music and it will be beneficial. Idea number six is to teach by rote. So some method books include pieces that are meant to be taught by rote, but you can also use things, anything that is highly patterned, you can use as a rote piece. It doesn't have to be that the book prescribes it that way. And you can definitely use this for certain parts of a piece. I think sometimes we can get too dogmatic in terms of reading and there's nothing wrong with wanting your students to have great reading skills, but if they've never met a certain rhythmic pattern before, there's nothing wrong with them learning that by imitation and then reading it in the context of the piece when they get to it as well. Idea number seven is to sing the melody. I love to get students singing. Not all students will, but I find more will do it if you sing loudly along with them. 
if they're nervous than if you just leave them to do it. Even if they're only whispering, it still is beneficial. I also like to get my students to sing the salsa, even if it's a bit too challenging and they can't quite keep up with me for some pieces. As long as we go into it with a sense of fun, they don't feel like they're failing at it. They just feel like, okay, it's a bit silly. Like I can't possibly say all those syllables in that time, but they still learn the shape of the melody through that. Idea number eight is to use the piece as a springboard for improvisation. Now, I would kind of twist that around and say use improvisation as a precursor to the piece. I kind of prefer it that way around, where we take something, say a chord progression or a particular rhythm pattern or something like that from the piece before the student has even started on the piece and before they've really seen it in many cases. We'll just take that element that I've chosen improvise with it and then when we do open up the piece they have already met some certain element of it and I can connect the dots for them. And finally idea number nine is to swap roles. See if your student can teach you a new piece. Ask them where you should start on it, what you should do next, what bits are likely to be the trickiest parts. By swapping roles you'll see whether your student really thinks critically or whether they're just following your instructions step by step and you'll see how they think about learning a piece and probably how they'll think about practicing it. Your one thing this week is to take just one of these ideas, any one of the nine or any one of the two mistakes and put it into action in your lessons. It's that simple. I would love to hear the different ways that you introduce pieces to students. Please come find me. You can comment on the article that goes along with this episode on the Colourful Keys blog or come chat to me on Instagram. We're at Colourful Keys. One of the awesome benefits for Vibrant Music Teaching members is that they get an exclusive member magazine every month. This magazine brings together our blog articles in a way that is digestible and super actionable. If you want to become a member and get the magazine as well as all the other benefits, you can go to vmt.ninja to sign up.